How many of you today would like to find the perfect church? The perfect church? What? This. We're already okay. You're already here. Okay, the perfect church. All of us would like to find the perfect church. The problem is the perfect church does not exist because it's made up of people like me and people like you. I'm not going to let you guys off the hook either. What we discover because of the combination of humanity and and deity, that there's a combination of people and God in the church, we discover that there are something that we discover problems, something called problems. Problems. And if you came here this morning to look for the perfect church, your search is over. It doesn't exist. The question is not whether or not a church has problems or not. They all have problems. The question is, what are the problems that churches face and what do we do about it? How do we face those problems? How do we deal with problems in a constructive way to find solutions? Well, one of the great things about the series we're in in the book of Acts is that it tells it like it is. And today we're gonna look at a passage of scripture that talks about problems, problem solving. How do they deal with issues and problems and what can we learn as we face challenges and problems within the context of this local church community, what we call Eau Claire Wesleyan Church. And I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Acts 6, Acts the sixth chapter. Pastor Damien skimmed over part of this and then concentrated on the last part of six and chapter seven last week. I wanna take the first seven verses of Acts chapter six on page 887, if you're looking for it in the rack in front of you in the, in the Bible. And uh, let's, uh, let's read those verses, Acts six verses one through seven. In those days when the number of disciples is increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. People who like the practical, down-to-earth reality and mundane really like this passage of scripture. There's nothing terribly dramatic or earth-shattering. This is ordinary, everyday problem-solving. But when done correctly, it can move a church forward in a positive direction. If it's done incorrectly, it can set you back. So let's talk about problems. Let's start with problems of a growing church. Number one, problems of a growing church. Fact number one is every church has problems. Every church has problems. What was their first problem? One of their problems immediately apparent was growth. Letter A is growth. And there are challenges that arise in any organization when rapid growth occurs. This church had started with 120 people. They had 3,000 added in one day. And 
and 5,000 in another day. So by the time we get to chapter 6, this church was at least numbering in 8,000. That's a lot of people in a church. This is going to create some challenges. Most churches don't grow that rapidly, but growth at any rate, any kinds of changes presents challenges. Now, two weeks ago, I talked about how every church grows in different, the four different kinds of growth. There's biological growth. Uh, families have children. You begin to fill the nursery. You need staff. You need space. You need volunteers. All of those kinds of things. And biological growth is a natural outgrowth of a church. There's also transfer growth we talked about. In our mobile society, people move, move a lot, even within a metropolitan area. They change jobs, change life situations, move into our community, and they come in, and they're looking for a church, and they transfer to a church, our church. Then there's returning growth. It's estimated, I said, that in some parts of America, up to 50%, this is an amazing statistic, up to 50% of per professing Christians are unchurched. In other words, they believe the Bible, they've accepted Jesus as their savior, but for some reason, whether it's busyness or neglect, or maybe they just had a, a bad church experience that turned them off and alienated them from church, whatever that was, and they left the church and they're starting to return, and we have returning growth. And then, of course, the most common type of growth in the New Testament was new believer growth. This describes pre-Christians who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that basically ought to be our primary focus because it's not just building the church numbers, but it's building the kingdom of God. We're bringing people into faith, a new faith in Jesus Christ. Well, every time we grow, we change. And with change comes adjustment. A new person comes in and takes a seat in the pew that you've had for a long time and you have to move, okay? I know everybody has their comfort zone. They like to sit in this place. I, when I come into a room, whether it's a classroom or auditorium, I come in and I scope it out and I say, okay, I want to be on an aisle because I don't like to be very far from an aisle and I want to be about three quarters of the way back. And once I've had that seat, if I come into the same auditorium time and again, I will find that same spot. How many of you are just like that? I know, I see, yeah, I see your hands. That's what you do. That's, that's what happens. Well, change happens. And, and, of course, the new believer doesn't know all the standard ways to act or dress or talk, and so we have this, 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 this upset of things that happen when, when new believers come and they get grow. The larger the change, the more challenges we have. The question is, how do we handle change? How do we handle challenges? How do we handle problems in a church? Churches of different sizes handle things differently. Different sized churches have been compared to different sized watercraft. And I'm just going to give you this example so you can understand a little bit. Um, a small church is, is kind of like a canoe. A small church is like a canoe. It's very simple. There's two people. It's easy to communicate. It's easy to coordinate. Everybody knows everybody else. You know what the other person is doing and thinking. Change can be handled spontaneously with no warning or planning. You can change the direction of a canoe, just boop, let's change, boom. Very simple. Small church is kind of like a canoe. Just everybody knows what's going on. You don't have to call a committee meeting to make a change. You just change direction. A medium-sized church is compared to a charter fishing boat. A fishing boat. You have a captain and you have one mate, and the people on board are clients. There are defined responsibilities, and the tasks have to be more organized. You have to plan a little bit more. You have to think ahead. It costs more to operate a fishing boat than it does a canoe. It's a little more complicated. A larger church can be compared to a coastal ferry. 
It's a bigger boat, a larger crew. There's a captain, crew, an engineer, cooks, concession stands, crews for loading and unloading the boat. Highly structured schedule, and it's hard to know, to know everybody. And it's a lot harder to turn a big boat than it is a small boat. The, the canoe you can turn on a dime. A coastal ferry takes a little bit. And then a megachurch, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a megachurch. We have a megachurch, it's been compared to an ocean liner or a cruise ship. Very large, there's a captain, a huge crew, even the captain doesn't know all the crew. Well, every church is valid and every church ought to be growing, but the problems are different and how we deal with them can be different depending on the size of the church. Well, since the first church in Acts was so large, this growth that they had caused the problem that we read about, which is called neglect. Neglect. Letter B, neglect. Now, no nation, just understanding the culture in this in which this happened, no nation had a greater sense of responsibility for the less fortunate than the Jews did. The Jews always took care of their own. And Barclay writes this, he talks about, we don't always understand what they were doing and what was going on here. So I wanna just read a little bit from Barclay. It says, in the synagogue there was a routine custom. Two collectors went round the market and the private houses every Friday morning and made a collection for the needy, partly in money and partly in goods. So wherever you live in Eau Claire, you get, every Friday morning you're gonna get somebody to come by and they're gonna collect money and, and food or goods from you. That's, that's what they did. Later in the day, this was distributed. Those who were temporarily in need received enough to, to just enable them to carry on, get through their need. Those who were permanently unable to support themselves received enough for 14 meals, enough for two meals a day for the ensuing week. This is what they did. They took care of the, the, their people. The fund from this, which this distribution was made is called the kupa or the basket. In addition to this, a house-to-house -house collection was made daily for those in pressing need. It was called a tamhui or the tray. Now it's clear as we look at the book of Acts, that the Christian church had taken over this custom of taking care of those that were in need. But amidst the Jews themselves, there was a, there was a schism. In the Christian church, there were two kinds of Jews, okay? Two kinds of Jews. There were the Jerusalem Palestinian Jews who spoke Aramaic. These are the ones that were from the area and they spoke Aramaic. Then there were those that we read about in, the, in Acts 2 that were from all different parts of the world and they had been dispersed throughout the then known world around the Mediterranean and other parts and they had lived some, some multiple generations and they didn't speak Aramaic, they spoke Greek. And when they came together, they, they also came to Christ on the day of Pentecost. So there was this whole group of people that spoke Greek that were the, this other group of people. Many had been away from Palestine for a long time. And the natural consequences was that the spiritually snobbish Aramaic-speaking Jews looked down on the foreign Jews. And this contempt affected the daily distribution of alms of taking care of these particular widows. The Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected. So with this growth of the church, whether it was intentional or unintentional, came the problem of neglect. In other words, somebody's needs were not being met. Okay, so there was a problem here. Somebody was suffering neglect. Now, to my knowledge, we have no Greek-speaking widows in this church. However, we have people that sometimes feel neglected. I don't know if you've ever felt neglected in a church. Your, your needs weren't met. Or everything's changing and things are happening so fast that you can't keep up with what's going on. 
Or all the focus is on a ministry you're not involved in. It's in children's ministry, or student ministries, or worship, or missions, or outreach. And there appears to be favoritism. Everybody's getting attention and getting involved in this ministry except me. Neglect. From time to time, any one of us can feel the sting of neglect. Or we just kind of fall through the cracks and nobody notices that we're coming or going or what happens. That happens in a church. And no matter what the role of the church in the first century, the church has continued to minister to needs, not just within the church, but outside in the community. One of the things that we try to do as a church, and the church has taken as its mission to minister not only within the body, within the context of the church, but also out in the community. And of course, one of the issues that has been on the forefront of the culture wars is we want the church to stay in the four walls and we don't want you to do anything outside there. I read an article from Breakpoint that dealt with the role of the church in the public square. It's the kind of thing, keep the church out of the public square because the church ought to be inside the four walls. And uh, John Stone Street wrote an article about, um, about growing, it's entitled, Growing Numbers of Voices Are Telling Christians, Keep Your Views to Yourself, Stay Out of the Public Square. What if we did that? And he writes in this article, he talks about uh, Frank, Frank Capra's uh, Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, if you haven't seen it, um, you probably have to rent it because it has been in the theaters for about 60, 70 years, whatever. But it's a great movie about that. And basically, It's a Wonderful Life shows uh, a despairing George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, learning how the world would be without him. And perhaps we need a similar cinematic telling for those who are currently telling Christians to stay out of the public square and keep their thoughts about marriage, religious freedom, and the dignity of human life to themselves. And maybe a few Christians need to see this too. George Bailey was stunned to discover what Bedford Falls would look like had he never been born. He, he made the statement, I wish I'd never been born. And he, he's taken into this hypothetical story of what Bedford Falls would look like had his impact not been there. And I think that, that we need, would also be just as shocked to see what the world would look like without Christianity's influence. I know that we wouldn't have thousands of volunteers working in prisons to help incarcerated men and women return to communities to, uh, uh, to be productive citizens. We'd certainly see a lot fewer hospitals and free clinics. After all, he says, I've, been, I've seen a lot of Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, and Catholic hospitals, but I can't remember any Buddhist or atheist or New Age ones. Or for that matter, food kitchens or rescue missions or adoption agency or disaster relief organizations or entrepreneurial training programs. All about that. He says, when Christians keep it to ourselves, everybody loses. They did a study in New York City. Um, or in, actually, actually, it was in... Uh, uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, found that churches such as First Baptist in Philadelphia provide millions in services, in dollar services to communities, everything from marriage counseling, helping people get off drugs and alcohol to providing K through 12 education. There are all kinds of things that, that, that we are continuing to be out there to, to minister to problems out there. And no matter what the challenges are that come back, it's, it's critical that Christians continue to be engaged, not only in filling needs here in the church body, but also needs out in the community. He says, 
Like Bedford Falls and George Bailey, our society really will miss us if we're cowed into a privatized faith that keeps religion inside the four walls of our churches. That's just the commentary on cultural issues. And we all see that when we look at problems in the church. We see growth and neglect. Because of the neglect in this particular story, we have a complaint. Now, isn't a complaint bad? Isn't complaining bad? Some would say a complaint was the problem, but I say no. The complaint brought the problem to the attention of the leadership. Complaint brought to a leadership is good because then it's brought to someone that can do something about it. If you complain to someone else who cannot do something to solve it, then it's gossip or murmuring. But bringing a complaint is positive. It's even spiritual if it's brought to someone who has a responsibility to find a solution and the motive's right. Bringing a complaint to anyone else with a different motive would be gossip, divisive, and maybe sin. So this is a complaint brought to leaders in order to find a solution. Is that good? Yes. And we'll always have problems in the church because we're human. So we see problems of a growing church. Every church has problems. Number two, we find the priorities of Christian leaders. And the fact, number two, is how we deal with the problems determines the outcome. For leaders, it's important that leaders are open and actually receive objective criticism. The leadership said, hey, let's address this. They, they received the complaint. They validated the concern. They acknowledged, hey, we got a problem here. They didn't deny the problem. They weren't threatened because somebody complained. They, could, they didn't say, how could there possibly be a problem in my church? <laughs> they didn't say that. Instead, they said, hey, okay, here's a problem. Let's address it. Now, there's a, there's a contrast between complaint and criticism and difference between people who are critical and people who have an objective criticism. And I put this up there just to show the difference between that so that when we bring a complaint, how can we address it? Uh, being critical is unspiritual. Uh, having objective criticism is spiritual. We're looking for a solution. One has selfish motives. One has unselfish motives. One, the goal is finding my way. The other one is, is a positive solution. For one, the motive is blame or finger pointing. The other was to build up or find solution. One is condemning, one is encouraging. And I think if we ever bring a complaint, we have, there's a problem in the church, a problem in an organization, problem in a family, whatever it is. Bringing the complaint, as we bring that, say, look at my motives. What is, what is my motive here? And the leadership should accept the complaint with openness, which they did. So receive objective, uh, objective criticism. Secondly, second guideline is to confront immediately. Confront immediately. When, when the leaders saw the validity of the complaint, they said, there's a genuine problem here. They didn't waste any time. They took action immediately. They did what everybody does in every church. They called a committee meeting. That's what they, that's what they do. Now, it's crucial, it's crucial, no matter what context or relational group this is, whether it's a family, whether it's a church family, whatever it is, that issues be dealt with quickly. Problems that are not dealt with quickly and expeditiously begin to fester and they cause grumbling and complaining and, and murmuring and the result is division and disunity. And one of the things that I've always been committed to is as soon as we discover there's an issue, a problem, is I'm committed to dealing with it. Let's find out what the problem is. Let's deal with it. I know some leaders are more comfortable than others 
in dealing with issues and problem solving. Not, not everybody is equally gifted in that kind of a, a gift. But it's critical that, that we not only validate a concern, but we actually deal with it right away. It's okay. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Sooner or later, the carpet's going to be pulled back, and then it really stinks. And I, I know many, many organizations and many churches that have, they, they, they find a problem, they go into image control. Okay, we're going to try to conceal this from people, or we're going to do damage control. And instead of dealing with the issues, they try to hide it and conceal it. More concerned about portraying the image of the perfect church without problems than dealing openly and authentically with problems. This is a great story, a great example of how they validated the problem and they said, we're going to deal with this expeditiously. Now, the leadership asked, what should our role be? We validated it, we're dealing with it. What should the leadership role, in particular the apostles' role, should be? The third step is priorities. They, they want to determine roles and priorities. In Acts 6, 2 and 4, it said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. And we will instead give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. They, they stated their priorities. Now, they didn't minimize the problem, but they said, we have priorities of things that we are called to first. They determined what was the most important for them as the apostles or leadership. The top priorities, nothing was more important than for them except spending time in prayer and the ministry of the word. The implication was if, if they neglected prayer and the ministry of the word if, by serving tables, getting integrally involved in the solution, they would be neglecting the most important things that they were called to do says, it would be too much to give attention to prayer and ministry of the word and try to minister to physical needs, they said. Not only does this say it was their full-time job, it says what they were doing was important. Now, I know some of you think that I just get up and talk on Sunday morning. Um, and I'll admit some sermons are better than others, some worse. You know, you can't hit a home run every, every time. But, and, and I want you to know, I don't preach other people's sermons. This is just a little, little uh, bit of... Uh, talking about what I, how I approach it. Some of you probably wish I did preach other people's sermons. They may be better. Um, but every so often, someone will come up to me afterwards and say, uh, have you heard Bill Hybels on that sermon? Or I think I'm going to send you a link to Andy Stanley on that text. I think you, you do some good on that. So anyway, you, you, you can do that. That's okay. But my job, okay, the job of the preacher, or if Pastor Damien is preaching. Uh, my mission on a weekly basis is to spend time with God, time in the Word, in prayer, and ask God, what do you want me to preach Sunday morning? What do you want me to say? A large part of my work week is, is spent in prayer and study and preparation and writing. So hopefully we all get to hear from God. And I take it very seriously, not because I happen to be the one that d does it, but because I believe God supernaturally every, every week takes this word and applies it to our lives. And when I, when I write a sermon, first of all, it's preached to me before I can preach it to you. This isn't me saying, thus saith the Lord. This is God saying it to me. When he says it to me, then I can share it to you from my heart. It's the preaching prophecy declaring God's message to people of the present day. And God has something to say to you every week. 
He has something to say to you every week. That's one reason I get dismayed about irregular attendance. Some th people think regular attendance is once a month or, or once every three weeks. God has something to say to all of us every single Sunday. Some people miss 75% of his message because they think regular attendance is once a month. God wants to speak to all of us consistently. And what this passage says is it's so important for the apostles to spend time in prayer and the ministry of the word that we need to find other people to carry out these tasks. So how do we deal with this? They determined their roles and their priorities. And secondly, they selected a course of action. The leaders called the congregation together with congregational participation. They selected people. So they defined the problem, then they got organized. So here we see, number three, the provision for ministry. There's something not getting done. How do we get it done? Fact number three, God uses people to solve problems. God uses people to solve problems. They selected qualified people. Critical that that there be a letting go. See, if, if the leaders, and if you're in a position leader, if you try to do everything yourself, sometimes you need to select people, qualified people, to carry out uh, part, of the, part of the solution. How were they chosen? Number one, they were ethical. These people had a good reputation, a proven record, had complete confidence, they had a sterling character and conduct. Secondly, they were spiritual. They were full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. Because the church makes decisions based on spiritual principles and because of that, the church has to have people of faith and people who have spiritual eyes. And then they were wise. They were full of wisdom, practical application of knowledge, able to manage. Now, when we look for leadership in this church to fill positions of all types, we look for the same things. We look for people that are ethical. They have a good reputation. And they, it may require somebody to be in the church for a period of time so that we know. When we place somebody in leadership, we want to have the full confidence that you can have in them because these people, these men or women are ethical. They are spiritual. In other words, they're able to make decisions from a spiritual perspective rather than a secular or carnal perspective. We have what are called faith budgets. Um, I'll never forget, uh, once a year, the, the leadership team, the board, uh, goes through the process of setting budget for the next year. And, uh, and I remember one time I did this back, this was back in our church in Tacoma, and we were proposing a 10% increase over the past year's budget. And uh, one, of the, one of the newer persons on the board said, you know, um, we don't have that 10%. And I'm not sure if, that's, uh, if we should do that or not, because we don't have it. And one of the older, wiser board members says, actually, we don't have any of it yet. And they said, oh. So just setting a budget is faith, because we don't have any of it yet. So if God leads you to lead in working in that capacity, it may take faith, because you're planning a year, you, you've hired staff, and you're paying utilities and doing whatever you want to, and you don't have a dime of it yet. We don't have three years of income back. It's, it's like, okay, as it comes in. God works through faith, and that's... That's part of that. So leader, these leaders, not only were they supposed to be ethical, but they had to be spiritual so that they could see. See, we are not in the business as a church. We're not in the business uh, to make money or to preserve resources. We, we, need to, we want to take care of resources. 
but we're here to funnel resources. I'll never forget a story. Um, there, was a, there was a church, a large church in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, pastor Fulton Buntain was the pastor. And they had, they were in there, they had, had been in this facility for about 20 years and they, they decided they needed to renovate, they, they recarpeted, they, they did all these upgrades. And it is a 2,500 seat sanctuary and a huge lobby and, and auxiliary space and just classrooms and everything. They just redid the whole thing, all brand new carpets and everything. And he got up at the dedication service on a Sunday afternoon. And he said, I just want to thank you for your commitment and your uh, wanting to continue to do ministry and mission through this church. And he said, now we've got new carpet, we've got everything new. He says, now let's wear it out. You know, our, our tendency to, let's take care of, yeah, we want to take care of it, but we need to use it because there are resources that God has placed there. So let's wear it out. I'll never forget hearing that. It's an amazing statement because our resources are to be used for God's purposes to bring people to Christ, to minister life, to meet needs. And so he said, let's wear it out. Also wise, this wisdom applied to physical tasks, taking care of physical needs. And all the ministry in the church, it's interesting, all the ministry in the church requires these types of persons, people who are wise, people who are spiritual, people who are, are, are full of the Holy Spirit of God. There are no jobs that are more important than the other. There's no hierarchy. All ministry requires people who are spiritual, ethical, and mature. So he said, select qualified people. Then he said, delegate the authority. One of the, one of the biggest problems in the church is this this clergy-laity division. You know, you hire the pastors and they, they do all the work and everybody else just kind of hangs out. You know, whatever that is. Um, and and it's, it's not healthy because God has created us as all ministers. We're all ministers designed to minister. And there's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. We have different roles that we play. But, but basically everybody is engaged or to be engaged in ministry. And one of the problems is, is pastors don't delegate, they just kind of hang on to everything. And they try to hang on to all the jobs and all the responsibilities. You do that, you limit the ability of the, of the, of the church to do the ministry and the, and the mission because you, can, you just can't do it that way. Delegate, they delegated the authority. These guys said, this is our job and role and responsibility, let's find these people to do that and let's delegate it. It says they laid hands on them. They were set aside. So they laid hands on them. They turned responsibility over to them. The, 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 the act of laying on of hands is very significant in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it was used for bestowing blessing to express identification, to commission a successor. And here, it's setting them apart for serving, letting them go, delegating, saying, go. Go do it. And Philip and Stephen both started their ministry by serving tables. So one of the things that it's very important in the church that we understand that we must learn how to serve first as we learn how to serve. You know, one of my first jobs in, the, in, uh, in ministry was, it was working with children, uh, helping lead songs down in children's church. One of the first things I ever did, and this was when I was, when I was still in high school and college, and I did everything in that church 
from that to working with youth to uh, serving as a custodian to doing music and all kinds of stuff. Learning to serve, I didn't have visibility or any kind of title or anything, learning how to serve. There's a, there's a serving capacity. And these guys, they started their ministry serving tables, helping minister to needs. Where did they move on from there? They started there. Stephen became a preacher and he became the first martyr. Philip was a great evangelist. It, we don't know where all they went, all of them, but we know that those were two of them. We all start with serving, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in the background. So what happened next? What happened when this problem was brought, something that could have stopped this church cold because there was a problem? They found a solution, they delegated, and what happened, because of, of, of approaching this from a biblical standpoint, let us see it was to move on and grow. In verse 7, it says, The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church kept growing. The word of God kept spreading, all because a problem was brought to the forefront, a solution was found, and the apostles continued to stay in prayer and the ministry of the word. The responsibilities delegated, carried out, and says even priests from the temple in Jerusalem were becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Wow, you didn't know all that was in there, did you? Problem solving. Problems are really not bad. Problems help us reevaluate, confirm priorities, find God's provision for his church. Problems, the more we change and grow, the more they'll show, we can expect them. But when we follow God's plan for problem solving, we can move on and we can grow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us some of these practical, even mundane illustrations in the Bible about how this all works. And I just pray, God, that you would inspire us as we move forward, as we look forward and, and continue to move on in Acts. And Father, that we would continue to understand your plan Thank you, Lord, for not whitewashing this chapter and, and making it look like they didn't have problems and they, they were perfect and whatever, but showing the example of how they solved issues. And I pray, God, that you would make us a people that can approach problems biblically and righteously and with God-given solutions. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.